Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Extra Milestone, your weekly film anniversary podcast, where we take a trip to the past to discover the classic films that have made the cinematic landscape what it is today. I am your host, as always, Sam Noland, a contributor to Cinemaholics and guy who does this show every week. That's probably what I'm uh, most prominently known for at this point. And I am joined once again, returning to Extra Milestone, my personal friend, uh, and just an all-around uh, swell guy and all-around cinephile. It is Rob Wilkinson. How's it going, Rob? Going good. Thanks for having me back. Of course. I was glad to. And you know, when I saw that this movie that we're going to be talking about, when I saw that it was coming up, I you were possibly the first person that came into my head for a variety of reasons. Uh, one of them being that... Uh, you're one of the most knowledgeable uh, individuals I know when it comes to Oscar history. And this movie is a very, very notable uh, sort of hallmark of that uh, for a variety of reasons, which we'll get into. There's no use prolonging it any further. We are going to talk all about Eve. You see what I did there? I did. <laughs> yeah. Honored members, ladies and gentlemen, for distinguished achievement in the theater, the Sarah Siddons Award to Miss Eve Harry. I'm going to take you to Margot. Oh, no. Oh, yes, she's got to meet you. She's quite a girl, this what's-her-name. Eve, I've forgotten they grew that way. I take it she read well wasn't a reading it was a performance brilliant vivid something made of music and fire how nice after all you've said don't you know that part was written for Margot? it might have been 15 years ago it's my part now you're quite a girl you think fasten your seatbelts. it's going to be a bumpy night do all that just for a part in a play. I'd do much more for a part that good. Why do they always look like unhappy rabbits? Because that's what they are. Go and make him happy. There never was, and there never will be another like you. All About Eve is was uh, released in October of 1950 and uh, features an all-star cast and was, I, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, is it the most nominated film in Academy Award history? It is tied for the mm. most nominations. What, do, you know what, do you know what the other, the other ones are? Yes, I do. Titanic and okay. recently La La Land. Oh really? And yeah. and it's uh and it's fourteen nominations, correct? Fourteen nominations. I'm wondering is th is it the one? Because I think it won how many of them? Was it six? Am I six. remembering that correct? Yep. So is that the most of those three? Hmm. Well, no, Titanic. Okay. Oh, right. Titanic, Titanic is tied for the most wins. <laughs> yeah, because it got eleven, right? Yep. Man, it's it's weird that uh that I 
kind of know this stuff, but also not. So that's just that was a little uh, uh, indicator of my entire uh, knowledge base. But yeah, this movie is. Uh, it was it received uh, five acting nominations, right? Yes. Or, or is it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so two for best lead actress, two for supporting actress, and one uh, for supporting actor. Uh, of which, do you know how many uh, uh, they won for that? Only one uh, supporting actor. And it was George Sanders. Yep. Who has one of the greatest voices I've ever heard. It's like, I know. It, it's like young Orson Welles, uh, just like to the 10th power. It's just a really firm voice, you know? Yeah. The the kind of voice that you would want like to be narrating a museum exhibit about you after you die. I know that's a really morbid <laughs> place to go, but for some reason, that's the first thing that came into my head is that if if, uh, you know, if I if, if there's a museum exhibit dedicated to someone, I would want George Sanders voice to be the <laughs> one narrating. it. Um, and yeah, uh, and as a matter of fact, it is that very voice. Which opens the movie. Now, it, it uh, starts out at an award ceremony, which, as we find out, actually is kind of the end of the story chronologically, or almost the end anyway. Yeah. And it's where uh, uh, a young actress, Eve Harrington, is winning an award. And what was the name of the award? The Sarah Seddens Award? Sarah Siddons Award. Siddons which is uh, which is a an award for acting in the theater on stage and this is a movie very much uh, uh, centering around sort of the theater life and i think it's one of the very best um i think if if uh, in case it was unclear this is like one of the best movies is it not it absolutely is this mm-hmm has got to be one of my favorite just best picture winners yeah because i think because it's uh in addition to uh all those acting nominations and everything it did end up winning best picture and director handful of technical awards and god damn did it deserve it this thing is this thing still holds up remarkably well today i first saw it in Late 2015, I can't remember exactly when, but it was around there. And I, I seem to recall that it was like expiring off of Netflix or something. And it was one that I had heard about and thought, oh, I might as well watch it. And I remember liking it, but uh, I guess probably just because of uh, uh, how young I was or if how much I was paying attention. I just It just did not hit me in the way that it did when I rewatched it earlier today. Within minutes, I was like really captivated. Yeah. Uh, the first time I saw this, I th- it had to have been midway through college. Mm. And I'm pretty sure I got to it just because, oh, Best Picture winner won a bunch of awards. And so that was just at the top of my list. Right. And I did really enjoy it the first time, but mm-hmm. it's been with each repeat viewing that I enjoy it more and more that it's made it a favorite of mine. Nice. So how many, so, uh, how many times would you say... That you've seen it by now. Um, this has to be at least fifth, maybe sixth. Goodness I gracious. actually started off the year with this movie. It was the first movie I watched of 2020. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. Even more uh, serendipity when it comes <laughs> to uh, this episode. 
Yeah. Uh, so, so that's good to hear that it that it only gains traction over time. Uh, yeah. So, I I'll be honest. I kind of like I'm thinking about watching it again right after <laughs> this episode, like before the Amazon rental expires. Because man, this thing is this thing is rich with character. Um. And uh, and uh, I, I just I, I found out a few things about sort of the behind the scenes that I wanted to uh, let everyone know. Um, so it does star uh, Betty Davis in the lead role as or co-lead, I should say, yeah. as uh, Margot Channing, who is a Broadway actress uh, who is uh, very successful, very acclaimed, very popular among the New York uh, theater circuit and uh, and is starting to starting to uh, maybe decline a little bit because she's at the ripe old age of 40 years old. Yeah, at that point like your career is yeah. pretty much done. <laughs> especially well especially if you're a woman and this is that's kind of yeah. one of the big things with this movie is the way that and I actually talked about this uh, a few weeks ago and this is a movie that I imagine we'll be bringing up on a number of occasions. Uh, I did an extra milestone with my friend Emily Kubenkanik about Billy Wilder's Sunset Boulevard and mm-hmm. that was another movie about the way that actresses in particular uh, have like, especially at the, at this time, you know, when uh, when cinema was just starting out, and it was like the forties and fifties and stuff. Uh, there was kind of a very specific, a, a few very specific types of characters they could play, and a, and it mostly had to do with their age. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they could either play the young ingenue, the Eves so to speak, yeah. uh, or they could play like, you know, a little bit older, their star is falling a little bit, or they were just, you know, like in air quotes, an old lady. And that's kind of it. Whereas uh, men of all ages can play all different kinds of roles. There's a very clear delineation on the other side. Yeah, it's really terrible that it's been like that for actresses that after so long, it's just like, well, now the opportunities are going away. But for men, it's just always constant. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was preparing for this episode, I read a little bit of Roger Ebert's review of this. He gave mm-hmm. it four out of four stars, by the way. Naturally. Uh, and one thing stood out to me in it. He said the best thing that Betty Davis did for her career was age. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was interesting because this movie is kind of like an embracing of that of like, yes, she is getting older, but she's still got it is kind of what's trying to be said here. Mm -hmm. And I think, and, and uh, just to sort of jump ahead to like the the actual function of the movie and stuff, I think you're absolutely right. And I think it's uh, the way that you can tell that Betty Davis understands what it's like to be this person. Uh, Actually, I'm I'm not actually aware. I really should have done the research. Do you know if she was uh, just a film actress or, or did she work in the theater as well? Uh, I'm fairly certain she was in the theater at some point. Uh, (laughs) I feel bad that I don't know this one off the top of my head either. (laughs) I'm looking it up now. She did uh, appear in Broadway plays earlier in her career. Um, in like yeah. the uh, the 30s and stuff, and then slowly transitioned to film. And that certainly was how a lot of actors got started back in this time right. for film, that as they show in the film of, oh, now I'm talking to a producer about a film in Hollywood. Like mm-hmm. This was how a lot of them would just get plucked out. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it's uh, and it's important to remember that this is although cinema had been around for a very long time, like almost seventy years at this point, there was still a lot of adjustment that was kind of still being done it had like been it had been mostly taken care of but uh i think yet another connection to sunset boulevard in 1928 there was kind of just this hard transition from silent to sound cinema and that actually proved really difficult for a lot of actors particularly because they were they were naturally suited for silent cinema because of the gesticulation and the theatricality of the performances they were used to they were used to giving and now with sound they've they have to kind of develop a new way of acting um and uh, mary pickford is often credited as sort of pioneering film acting like acting specifically yeah. <laughs> that could only be done in film and so you see this a lot with and and uh, i love the sort of comparing this movie to Sunset Boulevard in the way that it is the theater side of things. And while it's a similar story, there's a, the details are very different. Yeah. Uh, I actually wrote that note down as I was watching it, um, <laughs> that it's interesting that both of them had this kind of, Oh, Hollywood's terrible narrative. And they are both about actresses in these fields yeah. aging and, not being relevant anymore, but they go about them in very different ways. I think you're right. And I think, and it hit me, I, I can't remember the exact scene, but about halfway through the movie, it kind of clicked into place what sort of the key difference, not only in the way the two, these uh, two movies are constructed, but kind of the fundamental difference between theater and film. Like if you really boil it down, theater is personal it's visceral it's tactical you you are there watching a performance take place that will only happen one time with film you're kind of seeing something that has been distributed out everywhere that has been produced that has been uh run through committees and stuff and not that that doesn't happen with with theater but film is definitely more of a business you watch sunset boulevard you get the sense that Although the characters who are sidelining uh, Norma Desmond, Gloria Swanson in that movie, they're they're not unmalicious, but they're kind of just, you know, doing their job. It's just business as yeah. usual. This movie is savage. Yes. It's one of the most savage movies I've ever seen. The I insults know. in this are are out of this world. Yeah, it's... It's a wild movie. Um, I love that memorable line. Buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy night. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Like, <laughs> the, this, the jabs that Betty Davis has in this movie, sometimes without even talking. The first thing we when that uh, award ceremony in the first scene, that's when we first see Betty Davis. And she has this glare that could like, disrupt the san andreas fault it's crazy the 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 death glare that betty davis has and uh what when that what ends up happening is we flash back from that award ceremony and we see how it all came to be where uh again like i said margot channing is a very successful actress and and uh, she is currently doing a run of performances of what, what was the play's name aged in wood Aged in wood, yeah. 
and a very successful play. And as it turns out, she has a fan, uh, Eve Harrington, played by Ann Baxter, who is who one night is just sort of like skulking around outside of her dressing room and well, is discovered. I, yeah. I think it's important to note that she's been skulking around for several performances now that right. she's been there every night, just waiting for Margot to go in and go out of the theater. Mm-hmm. And so, a- across multiple states, if I remember correctly, like yes. this is, this has been a long pursuit that takes place and it's sort of it's a it's it sort of informs uh, a question that i want to ask about the eve character but just to sort of set the the groundwork um uh she is welcomed into margo's dressing room with her and a bunch of her uh theater advisors and assistants and stuff Mm -hmm. and tells her story like of how i grew up poor in wisconsin and uh, my husband died in world war ii and uh you know i just love the theater and i've always loved to act and play pretend and stuff and she's soon taken under the wing of margo and very quickly proceeds to to very insidiously and eventually just downright straightforwardly undermine the very career and livelihood of not only Margot Channing's professional life, but her personal life as well. And that's kind of it is just the, the whole story of it's kind of like a star is born except the star is forcefully (laughs) being birthed. Yeah, exactly. Uh, So yeah. Um, here, here's here's something I got to thinking about. So we there's a there's a lot of narration in this movie. Like I said, George Sanders narrates part of it. Uh, we also get a lot of narration, sort of a lot of context being put in place by uh, Karen Richards, played by Celeste Holm, who was also nominated for an Oscar for this, mm-hmm. and uh, and she narrates a lot of it. We never, unless I'm forgetting something, we never get any narration from Eve, right? Yes, we don't get any narration from her. So what I'm curious about, and I think, and and maybe it's fairly obvious, but I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just sort of uh, uh, wondering here. Do you think it was Eve's intention to maliciously undermine Margot from the very beginning, or did that sort of emerge? as time went on like did she have malicious intent from the very beginning or did it just sort of naturally come about that way do you have a do you have a thought on that at all i absolutely have a thought on that she Hmm. intended to undermine her from the start okay that's what i thought i think that's what i think the movie makes it fairly clear but i think there's also potentially a way of looking at it uh looking at this saying like well, maybe it's just the way of things, but I think you are right. That there's there are ways to go about this without destroying the life <laughs> of the person you're uh, sort of looking up to, or at least yeah. pretending to look up to. So, and I think really the last thirty minutes says it all. Of like, sums up that answer that it was her intent from the beginning. Yeah, and I don't know if you want me to get into that now, or if we're skipping too far ahead. No, we can jump around. It's fine. I think I think we're gonna we're gonna be talking about the entire plot of this movie. So uh, sometimes we okay. do spoilers, sometimes we don't. If you haven't seen all about Eve, then by all means check it out because uh, yeah. we're we're gonna get into it here. Yeah. So when Addison confronts her towards the end about all her lies and 
oh, you need to go out there and give your best performance. Like that's when he really dresses her down and goes, your name's not even really Eve Harrington. <laughs> yeah. And all basically everything you've ever said is a lie. Yeah. And not I mean, even just, a widow. Yeah. And <laughs> that first of all was just, okay. So she was malicious from the start. She just came in with that sob story and just to make sure that they got her attention and that they felt bad for her and wanted to help her out yeah, and then just worked her way in. But then at the very end, we get Phoebe right. who was hiding out in Eve's hotel room, waiting for her to get back. And mm-hmm. we see that Phoebe is just a young Eve that she's ambitious and wants to be like her and imitates her in just the little bit that we see of her. Yeah. And we see that the cycle is just uh, starting all over again. Um, I want to get back to that in just a second. But first, yeah. I want to I would I just want to address the way the, uh, the final 30 minutes sort of culminates, which is yeah. that, as I said earlier, we do get to see the conclusion of the opening scene, which is the award ceremony. And what I love is that now we see it in a completely different light. We see that all of this sincerity, all of this gratitude that Eve is displaying is uh, is completely artificial and is just sort of uh, just sort of trying to save face. You know what I'm saying? So I love the way I, I, I've talked about this before, about the phenomenon of sort of taking a scene from like the middle or the end of a movie and then placing it at the beginning and how a lot of times it can be obnoxious. Uh, this is definitely one of the times that it works because of that contrast of how we, uh, how we see it. So I do love that. Yeah. I, I'm also really against just like flash forwards as a way to start your movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause it can really just be a cheap way to grab attention and then, not really have a point to it but yeah the when we come back to the scene at the end we have a completely different understanding and there's so much more weight to it um yeah a movie i saw earlier this year that i'd also recommend for doing something similar they mm. start off with a scene just kind of in a diner at the train station and you don't know, it's just this really brief conversation but you find out at the end, these two people have had this romantic affair for the past couple of weeks. And this is the last time that you're going to see them and that they're going to see each other. Hmm. And one of them goes off on the train. And when you get to that scene, it just has so much more behind it. And it's great when you have a film that can build up to this. What is, what is the movie you're talking about? Brief Encounter from 1945. Oh, for, I thought you were talking about like a new release. Ah, I'm like, no. what movie came out this year that has that? That sounds awesome. <laughs> no, Brief Encounter slaps. We all, that yeah. actually uh, that actually is celebrating an anniversary uh, soon. So we probably won't do that uh, uh, like in, within the next couple of weeks. Um, but it was released in a different country uh, in 1946. So we will end up getting to that. So it's good to know yeah. that you're a fan of that. I'll, I'll pencil you in for brief encounter. Rob. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a David lean movie too. So yeah. Uh, yeah. You know what? Tell me this. Uh, and this is, this is a bit of a tangent, but here's a movie that start that does that exact thing where it, it has a scene from the end that they show at the beginning. And then we see it completely differently when we actually get to it. I, I don't know if you've seen it or not, but Mission Impossible 3 does the exact <laughs> same thing. Okay. And I think it works really well there, honestly. 
So this might shock you. I have not seen a single Mission Impossible movie. Mm. Hot take. <laughs> I think the third one's the best. So partially just because of that, uh, uh, for that reason that it makes, you know, it, it makes the villain really menacing in a way that almost none of them are, but that's a discussion for another time. So I just want to, I just want right. to throw that out there into the, into the film ether, um, that we will not be covering mission impossible three on extra milestones. So don't ask. All right. And <laughs> speaking of villains to tie it all back. <laughs> that's right. Um, on the AFI's 100 Ooh. heroes and villains list, Eve Harrington got number 23 on the villains list. No. Oh, that is awesome. <laughs> I love that. I love that. They're just flat out willing to call her a villain because yeah. I've heard and, and not, it's not prolific by any means, but I've heard a small handful of takes that maybe, maybe Eve is like a misunderstood, uh, uh, protagonist of this nope. movie. And I'm like, no, 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 <laughs> you bite your tongue. I don't think that's, I don't think you can feel anything but sympathy for Margot and, but in contrast, anything but contempt for Eve. This is some malicious, manipulative stuff and actually i wanted to to tie it back to the very ending where we see phoebe sort of uh insinuate that maybe the cycle is just going to repeat yeah i was i i started thinking is this maybe some sort of karmic revenge even beyond just the uh, the way that history repeats itself because i'm thinking how long of a time period does this movie take place over it can't be more than a few months right yeah, no, I always figured it was about like a year max. Yeah, maybe so. So even if that's a, if that's the case, uh, we find out that Eve is like maybe in her mid twenties. If her, you know, if if she's becoming Margot and her Eve is is entering her life this early, maybe it's <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> some sort of justice saying like we will allow you the spotlight, but not for nearly as long as you deserve it. So we're just going to cut right to the chase with that. So I'm wondering if maybe that's some sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, strange justice at the end of that movie. Do, have you ever considered anything along those lines? Well, I haven't really ever thought of it in that way. Hmm. I've kind of thought of it more as there's always going to be that girl that's ambitious enough to go for it and so even if she becomes the star the award winner then she has to be looking out for the next her right my point is that it happens so soon so early yeah. in her career that maybe it's like some sort of karmic thing that the movie is exerting upon eve as implying that justice will be served beyond the the you know the end credits you know what i'm saying yeah i guess i've just never thought of it that way before I might be reading into it, but I just I just think it's interesting to note sort of the discrepancy in uh, in age and the way yeah. that, you know, their star starts to be undermined. At oh, yeah, definitely points. happening much faster. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a little bit. Uh, and I was I, I, I was going to mention this earlier. I think I got sidetracked, but such is the nature of Extra Milestone. Um, mm -hmm. I love the way that this th that uh, it handles 
Betty Davis's character of Margosh because she is the lead for all intents and purposes uh, along with sure. me. But it's really it's really Margot's story that we're meant to sympathize with and follow along. And what yeah. I love is the way that Eve starts to turn all of her friends and uh, pseudo theater family and stuff against her in such a way that she's kind of completely helpless against like what do you what can she even do how can she even object to this uh, margo i mean how can she even say like listen i'm not getting as much attention as i used to and now i'm upset about it like what way how can she communicate that without seeming like you know she's just she just wants attention and nothing else because obviously we know because we can relate to this that this is actually a very you know effed up thing that's happening to her but it's very clear to see how to the characters around her uh that you know they would just think that she's overreacting does that make sense what i'm saying yeah yeah i understand what you're saying i don't really think there is a way she could have approached that where it doesn't come off as cruel and throughout the movie they're all talking about like oh you're always so mean margo how can you <laughs> say that yeah. about her like if she does try to voice her concerns she's just labeled as a whiner exactly uh, i think if, if this movie were made today the characters would be telling margo that she's getting quote too emotional you know what i'm saying <laughs> yeah yeah like that's kind of a that's kind of the a common turn of phrase that we're uh familiar with nowadays so it and and it's it's clear to see like this thing is uh really universal in just the way that it understands that story of you know just just losing relevance in general and how much it sucks especially when it's a conscious effort on someone else's part so yeah uh it's a really, really engaging story in that way. And it actually sort of mirrors uh, a little bit of uh, uh, Betty Davis's story of how she came to this movie. I found out in doing a little bit of research, she was like really close to not being in this movie. It was, someone else was cast and they were just about to get uh, started on production uh, before and and uh, I'm looking it up right now. It was Claudette Colbert. I was about was to actually, say, yeah, <laughs> was cast in the lead role and then got an injury like right before filming yep. began. So we almost didn't get Betty Davis, and I think it's a damn good thing that we did. Uh, of course, I hope Claudette Colbert was okay, not to um, insinuate anything. But and I did uh, write down somewhere. Oh, uh, some of the other actresses that were considered for the yeah. role. Let's hear uh, it. Just a few: Catherine Hepburn. Barbara right. Stanwyck and mm-hmm. Vivian Lee. Yeah. Which which I could see all of them. Uh I could see the way that they could sort of make the character their own with those uh you know with their unique personalities. Catherine Hepburn oh, yeah. especially I think would have would have uh, been a hell of a Margot Channing, but there's something yeah. about just Betty Davis's way of uh, uh what's what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of her abrasiveness. Yes. That comes across really well while also being really sympathetic. I think it's magnificent. Yeah. I think any of these other actresses would have been great for the role, but they would have all come across very differently. And Mm -hmm. Betty Davis just makes it her part. Like you just, it's just one of the roles that I think of when I think of Betty Davis. Yeah. I'm trying to, cause she, she did not win the uh the academy award i'm trying to no. i'm looking up do you um, know who did 
Yes, it was for Born Yesterday, Judy Holiday. Ah, uh, yes, that movie. Yes, which <laughs> um, an interesting thing about that, I think that was an instance of just split vote at the mm. Oscars. Because really? if you look, you had Betty Davis and Baxter for this movie. Right. And then Gloria Swanson for Sunset Boulevard. Any one of those three. Yeah. And so would have been perfect because they were all such strong contenders. They split the vote and then born yesterday just snuck in there and got it. Weird. Yeah. It looks like uh, born yesterday was also uh, nominated for best picture uh, as was sunset Boulevard and father of the bride, which which is a, which is a damn good movie. Um, (laughs) But that is a, that's a, that's a bit of a, a tangent. Uh, and yeah, and actually, I also found out that, and this is, and this kind of informs uh, a little bit of Margot's sort of bitterness. I think is that Betty Davis had just recently, before this movie uh, got going, uh, severed ties with Warner Brothers, who she had been like under contract with and stuff. Uh, this is a this is a 20th Century Fox movie, mm-hmm. and so. There's definitely uh, Betty Davis was not one to uh, uh, to make compromises and, you know, undermine herself. So I think that's uh, really funny. Matter of fact, uh, she scared Marilyn Monroe on the set of this movie, the scene in the lobby with George Sanders. (laughs) Apparently, at one point, Betty Davis like snapped at her or something. And Marilyn Monroe, who is almost unknown at this point, went off and like threw up. Yeah, that. That sounds right. I didn't come across that particular story, but I did hear about uh, behind the scenes. A lot of the cast was just frustrated at Marilyn Monroe because she did keep messing up her lines. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, she's not even in the movie that much. So, yeah, uh, she's got, I think, two scenes, right? Yeah. It's something like that. Two or three anyway. Um, yeah. But yeah, this, this is one of her very earliest roles. So it's, it is nice to see her in it. Oh, yeah. I, I wanted to uh, I want to real quick, just uh, before I forget, I want to give a shout out to um, I, or, or just address, I should say that this is actually based on a short story, uh, The Wisdom of Eve by Mary Orr, uh, who is not given screen credit for some stupid reason. So shame on you. Joseph L. Mankiewicz. Uh, but evidently that story was itself based on kind of a different story that Mary Orr had heard. So this is very much coming from a, a like a, a genuine place where this happens a lot in, in the show business as a whole. Yeah. I, and I think kind of like Sunset Boulevard that while it's fictional, there's truth to it. Yeah. Right down to the characters, sort of, it, it seems like they could be playing a version of themselves. Yes. <laughs> With the exception of George Sanders, who, as far as I know, was not a, a scathing Broadway critic. Uh, wow. But I would believe <laughs> it if he was, because uh, what, a, what a commanding presence that man has. A fun fact, and this, this has nothing to do with anything. George Sanders was the first live action Mr. Freeze. Did you know that? I did not. (laughs) (laughs) In the 1966 Batman TV series, George Sanders played Mr. Freeze, a very different version of the character. So sorry, Arnold, (laughs) you were not the first one there. And actually, funnily enough, I've I've been watching the 60s Batman show recently. In the very next episode, guess who plays a villain named Zelda the Great? Who? (laughs) Ann Baxter. Oh. They had two All About Eve alumnus wow. in a row. 
as far as I know, they they were the only two cast members to appear on 1966 Batman, but that's awesome, right? Yeah, that's pretty cool. <laughs> I love that. Um, so yeah, I think I think uh, I think we've said a lot. Um, uh, did Did you have uh, anything else that you wanted to address on all about Eve? Because obviously, we could go on for a very long time. But just any other big things. One thing I do want to add, just because I liked it. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I've just never connected this before, but remember Birdie? The, yeah, uh, Thelma Ritter. Yes. Uh, she's in Rear Window playing yeah. a kind of similar <laughs> smart-mouthed <laughs> uh, Like a personal assistant. Yeah, yeah, I was like, where do I recognize her from? And not only her face, but this specific character. It was yeah. Rear Window, uh, which incidentally, yeah. the uh, her character in Rear Window um along with uh oh, what was the other lead in rear window other jimmy than stewart jimmy stewart uh <laughs> grace kelly grace kelly that's right uh grace kelly and thelma ritter were sort of uh a one character bifurcated into two from the original short story so that's yeah. always a fun thing to bring up yeah uh, rear window covered on extra milestone last year that episode's still <laughs> up uh in the same on the same bill as on the waterfront did that one with will ashton so that's fun a lot of a lot of 50s synergy i did have one more thing i wanted to mention Mm. so it's christmas 2019 i've worked a long day at alamo draft house right running where we both work day of the year yeah we (laughs) go go for very busy that day Christmas was ludicrous. Are you talking about Christmas Day? Yeah, yeah, Christmas oh Day. Oh my gosh. That is one of the worst days of my life. <laughs> oh man. Not even kidding. Wow. Oh my. Well, after the long hours, I get home, finally open Christmas presents, sun's gone down, and I <laughs> and I get a copy of All About Eve, the Criterion no. release. Oh, that's just awesome. like I've wanted. <laughs> nice and i go and open it and it's very strange because they've never done this on packaging since this for a second i but, thought you were gonna say that like a different disc was in there like oh, i open it man. and it's armageddon <laughs> okay don't joke about that that's an actual <laughs> thing that happens but oh yeah i know <laughs> but instead of you know like those plastic studs that you put your disc in uh-huh. in a dvd case like you normally would uh-huh. there's these black putty things what like i'll have to send you a picture after this but i've never seen them on any case before and they're kind of sticky so they are they stuck. on the disc itself no like it's the it's the nub that you put the disc on, which also I have a really hard time oh, getting it on there. I know exactly. What, uh, yeah, <laughs> I have a few like that, too. I know exactly what you're talking about. Oh, my about. gosh. So the booklet is in there and it's stuck up against these. And oh, the first no. time I go and open it, it damages the cover on the booklet. Oh, no. <laughs> Criterion. What, what are you doing? <laughs> you are doing so well. What's wrong with the plastic? Yeah. And the three movies that I've gotten since this one on the uh, spine codes, they're back to just the plastic. Really? 
So they got so many angry letters that they just discontinued it immediately. I remember (laughs) on the on the Criterion uh, Facebook page, I I don't remember if it was the exact same thing or something like it, but there was something with the huge Godzilla box set that was like their one thousandth title that had just a ton of complaints that there was like something screwing up the discs inside of it, like something physically warping it. Oh, that ain't good. It, it, I hadn't heard about it. It's been that. a good system for like 25 years. What <laughs> happened? There's no need to innovate movie <laughs> cases anymore. Criterion. We just care about the content, not the That's case. Right. Keep exactly. the case the same. <laughs> <laughs> oh my. As much as I love the cover art, which I would never dispense with that, but oh, seriously, man. when it comes to the actual mechanism of holding the disc itself, <laughs> I think they've just about figured it out as best they can. I heard, and I don't know if this is true because I don't have the copy yet, but the Parasite release, they included an extra slot in there for if you already have it, you can put your Blu-ray or DVD. Oh, really? In addition to the Criterion release. That's cool. Yeah, I bet a bunch of people do have it on uh, Blu-ray. Heck, I, I have I it. So, yeah, there you go. <laughs> and it's at the top of my Criterion wish list right now. Oh. I got to get that thing. Listeners, if you want to give us a Christmas present, send us Parasite on Criterion. Oh, yes, please. We will not disclose any address, but figure it out. I will take multiple copies, so don't feel (laughs) discouraged and think that somebody's already sent it. You go ahead and do it. Oh, very nice. (laughs) But yeah, this, uh, of course, we could go on for a long time, but this movie is great. It's one of the very best, I think. Uh, and I, that has now been solidified with the second viewing. And uh, honestly, I, I think I probably will end up watching it again before the day is up. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch it again sometime soon. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So uh, just really great movie about Eve. About Eve. There you go. All about Eve. <laughs> yeah. Just the way that uh that you know that people can prey upon others and how much that sucks and it's like not a fun story it's not kind of just the exciting uh you know journey that i thought it was before seeing it um it'll uh it's a very savage movie you'll love the insults in it like that that's kind of my favorite part is just the (laughs) brilliant writing i would love to just sort of quote lines for the next 15 minutes um but yeah it's a really really great one so uh robert i want to thank you for joining me on extra milestone once again i had a great time thank you for having me again i was happy to be back of course and i hope that we can do it again someday Uh, until such time as that happens why don't you let the listeners know where they can find you on the world wide web uh, best place you can find me on Letterboxd. I post reviews pretty regularly. Uh, I'll be under Film Ace Rob. Hmm, very nice. And is that your uh, Twitter handle as well? Yep. Very nice. And uh, so we actually, I will not sign off yet because we have a second segment to this episode, but uh, I guess we'll get to that in one second. And we're back. For you, listener, that was only a nanosecond, but for me, it was uh, several hours. I was going to say an eternity, but I don't know what that was about. And joining me for the second half of the episode is one of my uh, very good friends, an old chum, and a longtime collaborator. It is my co-host from Anyway, That's All I Got, Anthony Battaglia. Welcome back, Anthony. 
Thanks for having me back. I'm excited. Yeah, you know, this is uh, this this is the second movie that's being discussed in this uh, episode. And when I saw that this one was coming up, I say this to a lot of guests, but I have a lot of uh, I have a lot of friends that like specific things. And when I saw that this movie was coming up, I recalled imme- like instantaneously that uh, that this movie we kind of have a, a, an interesting connection with it. And so I thought it would be who better than Anthony to talk about Rebel. Without a cause. You know what kind of drunken brawls those parties turn into? It's no place for kids. A minute ago, you said you didn't care if he drinks. He said a little drink. You're tearing me apart! What? You, you say one thing, he says another, and everybody changes back again! Girls don't love their father. Since when? Since I got to be 16? Stop that! I love you, Jim. I really mean it. No. No, I don't want you to go to the police. There were other people. Why should you be the only one involved? But I am involved. We are all involved. Mom, a boy, a kid was killed tonight. This is all going too fast for me, You better give me something. You better give me something fast. Jimmy, you're very young. A foolish decision now could wreck your whole life. In ten years, you'll never know this even happened. Dad, answer her. Stand up! You want to kill your own father? I love it. I'm ready. That was uh, released in October 1955, October 27th, if memory serves. Not that it really matters, but uh, that was the year and the time. And uh, now before we get into sort of everything around not only the movie, but its release, which is uh, more significant than a lot of other movies you talk about, uh, I thought it it right to address right up front that uh, we actually, we share a little bit of history with this movie. And so... I'd like to I'd like to hear uh, you tell the story, Anthony. How did you first come to discover Rebel Without a Cause? Well, I remember uh, when we first uh, met and started discovering our similar love of movies. We used to do this uh, kind of game where uh, was it like once a week we'd give each other a movie to watch. It was once a week. I think a couple of times we tried it twice a week. I don't. I don't recall exactly, but we had a screenwriting class together, and uh, a lot of times we would just have a lot of extra time to just chat. So we thought, why don't we like give each other uh, homework and fun homework too? Exactly. Yeah. And this was one of the uh, the one one of the ones you suggested to me. And I think out of all of the ones you suggested to me, I like this one the most. I, I, I yeah. love this movie. It was. I was surprised how much I loved it, and it was yeah. I I I really good recommendation, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I was always very proud of it. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a uh, we a lot of times our tastes do not uh, uh, do not align. So that's uh, it was it was good to find uh, one that we both really liked, and that was that was not long after I first saw it, and I I cannot for the life of me remember why, but it was just that first year of college. I was just watching movies like a maniac, the most like with the most uh, activity that I've ever 
you know, watch movies with. Yeah, it was like, I remember you would you would <laughs> come to class like, oh yeah, I watched two movies this morning. I did eight a.m. <laughs> Uh, it was it was upwards of like four or five a day. It was ludicrous. Uh, yeah, there are times when I wish I could uh, go back to that. But hey, that's just it's all just a function of time. I mean, I've and, gone back to it during this uh, this quarantine. You know, I've right. watched like four or five movies a day. I've been enjoying that part. Yeah, there's there's so much uh, there's just so much of cinema to explore, and it can be daunting sometimes. But I just love how much of it there is, and You'll never run out. Never, ever. I, I defy anyone to run out that, you know, maybe maybe you could have done it in like 1937. Maybe you could have seen every yeah. movie ever at that time. Uh, not as much anymore. But again, that's just what makes it so uh, this art form so unique is the specific journeys we take. And I remember it was that first year of college. I was just watching a ton. I'd already seen a ton of classics, but there were obviously a, a ton that I haven't seen still to this day. There's a lot of uh, holes in my education. And one day, just for whatever reason, I suppose, I decided to watch Rebel Without a Cause. I think I may have been on a bit of a Nicholas Ray bender, mm. who's the director of this movie, very active throughout the uh, 40s uh, and 50s particularly, and uh, had a lot of really great movies. Uh, I can't remember a single one that I didn't like. And this one is at least one of the top two most iconic and well-known it's tied with uh in a lonely place i don't know if you've ever seen that's the humphrey bogart movie um i have heard of it but i haven't seen it it's really really great i was i'm i was devastated that i could not fit it into the extra milestone schedule earlier this year because it, it does qualify it was released in 1950 maybe we'll circle back around in 2025 and get back to it but uh, <laughs> yeah. such time has not passed and uh, yeah, I remember it's it's one of those movies, and I think this is interesting, is that it's a movie that's very uh, iconic in the sense that it literally spawned a lot of iconography, like visual markers, uh, visual identifications of movie history. You think of the red jacket that James mm -hmm. Dean wears or the cars that they ride or some of the lines even. But it's a movie I found that a lot of people have not actually gone back to watch. And there are a lot like this, many of which I've been sort of discovering on Extra Milestone, where the legacy has kind of superseded the movie to the point where uh, some might think that the movie doesn't matter. And I think that's a damn shame because this is a, this, this is a really great movie. Yeah, when I when I go back and watch these like like classic classics, I I try to separate the um the reputation from the experience because when they were released there was no reputation. This was right. just a new movie starring this new star James Dean and mm -hmm. Natalie Wood. So when I when I watched it the the first time and this time I guess I was just like let's just let's just watch a movie right now. That's all we're sure. doing. We're just watching a movie. Yeah. And it's just enjoyable. Like it's a good movie like mm -hmm. the, even forgetting about like oh they say this is one of the best ever yeah okay we'll see about that like no I, I don't do any of that like it's just genuinely enjoyable to watch i think it's interesting what you bring up about how the legacy was not there already uh because you're right like the you know no one could have known but actually there was uh th this movie was actually kind of unconventional in the way it was released because kind of the elephant in the room uh this movie was released like less than a month 
after James Dean died tragically in a car accident. Uh, what happened was that they started filming this movie and it was kind of just like a B movie thing that uh, people didn't really think that much of it. Uh, and then in the midst of the photography, uh, the movie East of Eden came out, directed by Elia Kazan, also starring James Dean, and uh, and was received very well. And they realized kind of midway through the production that, hey, wait a second, we've got something here. They were originally filming it in black and white. They actually reshot almost everything they had filmed uh, in color. And man, I can't imagine this movie in black and white like there's some there's some black and white movies that i can't imagine in color this is the opposite situation can you imagine yeah i mean just the jacket alone how do you think yeah well that's that's yeah that's kind of the obvious um like go-to just that you know it's it's unlike anything else you've ever seen and just the colors in this movie how do you think this movie would have played uh in black and white like if it was exactly the same just without color well uh i think it it definitely would have been a different experience i think Mm -hmm. I think the color helps bring out some of the differences of the youth because right. where you know this is this is right when color was first becoming uh more emphasized and more encouraged mm-hmm. so uh I think it's natural for a movie starring mostly young people about young people about the young per- person experience being in color kind of shedding light on that experience and i think a black and white film it would have it, it might have even just faded into the background of a lot of the other movies of that time if it, it was just black and white yeah i think you're absolutely right and i love what you said about the way that it really kind of drives home the divide between parent and child which is very much about what this movie is about not yeah. even like multiple generations this specific generation and the the kids the youth at the time and the parents and i think uh i think if it were in black and white that would have definitely come across like it would be hard not to this is not a particularly subtle movie and not that that's a bad thing but that's just kind of the tone that it's going for but it just hammers it home that much further and i think uh, it definitely would have faded uh into obscurity if that were the case and uh, that we would all we would all have been worse off for it and now this is a time this is 1955 i think it's worth noting that the 50s are often cited as the decade that for lack of a better explanation kind of started viewing teenagers as real people you know what i'm saying like before this there were kids and adults that like there was there wasn't really a transition point matter of fact if a teenager showed up in a movie they were often just kind of pigeonholed in with the kids uh whereas this is very specifically about the teenage experience uh and specifically of the 1950s what it means to be like just tasting freedom and yet never getting it and how frustrating that is and um and how dangerous that can be and and this is a really just a just kind of a sad regretful movie and i love the way that that contrasts with the bright colors with the vibrant imagery and so that uh, that is yet another reason that we're all that we kind of lucked out without knowing it yeah for sure yeah uh, it actually it reminds me of a movie, and I feel like I bring this movie up all the time. Uh, but I just saw it earlier this year, and it kind of blew my mind. It was, and I'm and I'm and I ruin the pronunciation every time, so I'm just going to acknowledge that right up front. It is uh, Agnes Varda's Les Bonheurs, which translates to happiness. And 
it's it has a very similar approach, uh, tonal approach, I should say, in the way that the imagery is vibrant and the story is told and delivered in such a way that seems like it's just kind of a you know a lighthearted melodrama when actually it's a really a uh, d- deeply troubling story of adultery and jealousy and just existential dread. And uh, th- that movie has just been on my mind since I saw it like six months ago. So uh, d- do check that one out. I believe it's on the uh, Criterion channel. It's uh, different. It- it's about a different thing than this movie, but it does it in the same way, which I think is neat. Um, Anthony, I wanted to ask, um, so what do you think it is about this movie? We've already touched on it a little bit, but imagine if you will, this is 1955, October of 1955. And uh, paired with the fact that James Dean just died a month ago, completely unexpectedly uh, and tragically, 24 years old, way too soon. Uh, and you're seeing this movie. And let's say let's say you're a teenager. What do you think it is about this movie that might connect so harshly in the way it did? Well, I think the like it's about angst, but it's mm-hmm. not pointless angst. It's not like oh, those teenagers and their angst. Yeah. It everything has a purpose. The there's no just blind oh well like well it, there's there's two sides. So like you have um, Natalie Wood's character's parents. Right. Where they're just like, oh, she's at that age. And then you have James Dean's uh, father, who's like, I'm trying to understand. I'm trying here. I know you don't respect me, but I'm I'm doing my very best to talk to you. And I think maybe that's what it was. Like when when a teenager sees that they're being represented like, oh, hey, I've I've felt that way. You yeah. know, it's it's a very specific like, oh, isn't that nice? We're not being shrugged off this time, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember I recall very starkly and that's not a pun on James Dean's character's name Jim Stark but I remember <laughs> I remember very viscerally the first time I watched this movie uh right at the beginning of the movie what happens is that James Dean is drunk and is just sort of uh, uh uh scurrying around the streets I forget the actual verb but is just sort of uh walking around and stuff and is brought into uh a police station or a juvenile hall or something of that nature and eventually gets to talk one on one with uh, uh, some kind of a therapist or an officer or something of that nature and is just talked to as a person for what we can tell is kind of the first time in a very long time, if not forever. And just, and, and the guy says, well, here, why don't you just, why don't you hit something? Why don't you hit the desk? And you can tell that that is just such a moment of relief, such a release. Uh, And there's just, and the simple fact is, is that there's just not enough places to do that. There are not enough places in the world of this movie and the real world, I think, where uh, people of all ages, but especially teenagers can just, just kind of let their guard down. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I really wish we could have seen more of that character. Um, because that scene was kind of the first scene where I realized, oh, this is a little different than what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, I really love that opening scene. I think drunk James Dean is hysterical, and it, <laughs> I think I, re- I like I think that scene does a great job of establishing all of our main characters. Right. And that that little that moment he has where he's hitting the desk, and it doesn't really help, but it gives him a release <laughs> in that moment. Like right. he's like, okay. 
there's something more there's something more I need to deal with right now because I just gave it to this desk and I'm still angry. Yeah. And uh that's the that's this is the same sequence where he says uh possibly the most iconic line in the movie just sort of yells in a moment of unbridled frustration, you're tearing me apart, which uh Tommy Wiseau would pay homage to in the room. Some people say James Dean walked to, so Tommy could run. I respectfully disagree. James Dean ran so Tommy could ascend. So I'm yeah. just going to leave that right there. I mean, I'll say I thought that's that's one of the most iconic um, parts of it. Like I saw I've, I've known about that line before I ever even watched the movie. And mm-hmm. I thought it was kind of hammy the first time I heard of it. And then when I watch the scene in context, when he's drunk, I'm like, okay, he's drunk. That's not a, that's not, because that's not how people talk. They don't just, it's, it's not a soap opera where you just stand up, tearing me up. <laughs> like, I think him being drunk in that scene, because, you know, like, what's, what's the saying? Um, sober thoughts are drunk actions. Like, right. that is like, I, that scene is one of my favorites in the movie because of that interaction. And his, I think it's his, his, dad who's like his mom's freaking out and his dad goes he's just loaded honey and like i just laugh for like five minutes like that and then he's wandering around he's knocking on the the glass window he looks at uh play-doh he says hey why did you take my jacket man like i don't know why i love that scene so much this time yeah it's uh it it kind of really encapsulates this entire character and maybe even by extension the entire teenage experience where you're there are all these things going on all these like personal relationships hell like school is barely even brought up in this movie i that would have uh, just been the cherry on top but there are so many things you're dealing with at this time in your life uh, at, at like a greater volume than you ever had before. And because that's like, because it's the first time you're dealing with this many things, it feels like the end of the world. It feels like, how will I ever get used to this? And so that is why we just get uh, so many, uh, I'll, I'll say rash decisions that are made in this movie. Uh, one of them resulting in, in a guy's death, like a teenager dies in this movie i remember watching that and being amazed a that like the production code would allow it uh and b that it was in this movie which i guess i guess it was just a an example of i'd been led to believe that it was a different kind of movie by who i couldn't quite say but it's just one of those things where you you hear about this movie and then you actually watch it and see what it is and it's a lot uh different and to the point where I think part of the reason it's so good is because of when it was released. Like if this movie, same basic plot and everything, if it were released today, I think it's fair to say we wouldn't really think much of it. But that's because we've seen so many like it. This was uh, exactly. kind of the revolutionary aspects of this movie. Like you can see it. You can practically see it happening as you're watching the movie. Yeah, you can see this movie has been made a hundred times since it's been made. And it's just, it's been made poorly a million times too. Like they, <laughs> they see like this movie, so many people thought they were as cool as James Dean after this movie came out. Like, and so many writers thought they could come up with characters as interesting and they couldn't, they, they, they hone in on the angst and the, right. the silent type. And they forget that he's not, he, he's, he's, he's sincere. He's not faking it. Mm-hmm. He's, it's not, he's not hiding from everyone and he's not quiet because he 
wants to be cool. He's just like, I don't know anyone here. I'm just trying to walk to class. I didn't know I shouldn't step on that that seal. Sorry, yeah. buddy. <laughs> and like that's one of my that's another like little interaction I think kind of sets this movie apart from its kind of copiers, where yeah. I think a lot of times movies want to get that character, the James Dean type character, in an altercation right away. It's like, mm. hey buddy, what what did you did you mean to walk on that? And then it automatically <laughs> becomes a big thing. But in this movie, that altercation lasts 20 seconds yep that he goes hey man sorry i didn't know and then the bully's like all right you know where you're going go to go to the go to this room and it's yeah. it's over like that and it's just it's just a little tiny details that people have exaggerated ever since then like the amount of school bully scenes that i just can't stand in school this movie has uh, none of those except the, except for the knife fight but that was kind of right neat. yeah i was gonna say it's not it's that's not to say that there aren't other altercations but they're not where you would expect in uh, uh in seeing movies that have come out since and yeah i think that's really where uh we you know we've talked about him a lot but for a reason i think that's really where james dean shines is without very without very many words mostly through actions and just kind of a general aura is able to communicate that feeling of just kind of being a little lost, but also just waiting to see what happens, hoping that nothing bad does and uh, like ready to take on the world, but not necessarily knowing how to. And it's a lot of really, uh, really difficult balances that he's managing to strike. And it's a damn shame that that he never got to do more work. I watched uh, last night just because I figured why not. I actually watched uh, East of Eden, which is also on HBO Max in addition to Rebel Without a Cause. And that that's yet another performance that is really uh, just a wonderful portrayal of kind of what a lot of youths at the time were feeling. And to see this person on screen who understands it must have been really powerful um i haven't seen giant yet which is uh james dean last uh dean's last movie so i will make sure to get around to that eventually especially because uh it'll be eligible for extra milestone next year uh and there was a scene actually in this movie i can't recall exactly when it takes place in the story but it's when uh, James Dean's father, who's played by, uh, let's see here, I always forget actor names, uh, Jim Backus, uh, is talking to Jim Stark, James Dean, and says this line that is accidentally really poetic, where he's saying, like, in 10 years, will any of this matter? And here he is talking to James Dean who is already who had already been killed by the time this movie came out. So it's kind of this accidentally really poignant line about the way that I'm not going to say parents specifically but a lot of adults sort of uh, sort of condescend to teenagers and they assume this uh, they, they assume this position of like I made it, you know, I made it through the time period you're at now and uh and i turned out all right like does does that make sense what i'm saying i'm kind of generalizing a little bit but that is kind of the sense i get yeah i th i think it's the his his dad's not shrugging it off it's more of a i remember getting through it i'd like to help you get through it mm -hmm. but for somehow i just i just i guess i forgot how i got through it and i think yeah. that's kind of pretty relatable to a lot of 
parents because if you know if every parent remembered how they felt as a teenager there wouldn't be any you know of these silly arguments they have and i think a lot of it really their their relationship is one of my favorites in the movie because it's not just the standard kind of boring oh my parents don't get me like <laughs> so therefore i'm gonna act out he's yeah. like he's trying all, all parties involved are trying to talk and understand and his mom's a little outside and she's like why can't you just listen i'm trying to move and then the scene where he calls her out is like don't use me as an excuse anymore we yeah. can't you're not gonna make me move this time like i was like this this movie has balls man like mm -hmm. there's that surprised me and it shocked me and i liked it it was like this this is not this movie's trying to accomplish something which is more than I can say for most movies that have like ripped this movie off. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, one thing that I noticed while rewatching it this time is that with, uh, with very few exceptions, if any, every interaction that uh, a child has with their parent or an adult just in general it always comes from a place of the adult trying to correct the child. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. this assumption that they that we are always in the right because we have more wisdom. And while that is true, they have they have been around for longer, they do know more about the world. They also they're also failing to grasp the value of empathy and I think there are a lot of a lot of the greatest movies are about this, about just sort of saying, please listen and don't don't kind of don't approach it trying to uh, prove that you're right. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. And, like it's it's very much the case of um, like like literally just listen. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. Like one of my favorite um, Simpsons jokes is joking about this movie. And they're watching a trailer for like a ripoff of this movie. And then <laughs> they it's like, oh, this Jimmy, he's in a motorcycle gang and they're they're being crazy. And then the dad, the, the dad character who like literally is a spoof of the dad character in this. He has an apron on. He's like, <laughs> he's a rebel, Jenny. He's a rebel without a cause. <laughs> and it's just like roll credits. Yeah. I can just picture that's how I bet. Like, I'm sure many, many adults were just like. Well, this 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 James Dean kid, what, what a jerk! He's yeah. he, he's just listen to your parents, kid, and everything will be fine. Like no matter how specific and not subtle this movie can be, I bet a lot of people still didn't get that. Hey, maybe I should go listen to my teenagers. Yeah, exactly. They're going through a lot, and a lot of times, all they need is just like a, a pair of ears, so to speak. And I think it's worth noting that. A lot of the more relaxed scenes in this movie take place in uh, those areas, like I said before, where they feel like they can let their guard down. I think specifically, not so much with this one, but there is a sense in the early scene in the planetarium where they're just sort of going on a field trip and they're just sort of screwing around, joking around, having fun with each other. And it does, of course, lead to a conflict. But there's a moment where they're just kind of getting to be themselves. You know, they're in a darkened room and they're uh, relatively isolated. And you can tell that they're get, they're feeling a lot of freedom in this moment. And I think this is 
uh, sort of expounded upon later in the movie where they uh, 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 Sal Minio and Natalie Wood and James Dean end up finding like an old abandoned mansion, which fun. I, I found this out just before recording. That's the same mansion that they filmed the movie Sunset Boulevard. Which is (laughs) nice, which uh, which uh, was brought up actually a lot in uh, the conversation about all about Eve. So keep sneaking into this episode, you Sunset Boulevard, you. Um, And uh, and yeah, I love what you said just now about uh, sort of the way the perspective changes completely depending on what age you're at it reminds me and I'm, i might regret doing this because it's actually going to be an extra milestone in a few weeks but it reminds me of something that roger ebert said about the movie one flew over the cuckoo's nest where when when ebert was younger he found himself relating to jack nicholson's character a lot more uh just sort of you know the renegade the rebel uh causing trouble and then when he got older started connecting to nurse ratchet a lot more and the frustration with having to deal with just this id unleashed on the world and it got me to thinking about the title of this movie rebel without a cause uh I think it's I think it's clear to see that from the perspective of the movie it is something of a facetious title. It's saying that actually there is plenty of cause and we see that throughout the movie uh but it may appear to the adults as if it's for no reason and I think that's what this movie is kind of really trying to expose. What what do you make of uh kind of the subtext of the title? Well, I think a lot of this movie relies on the interactions between the the kids, the teenagers, and how they interact with each other. Mm. And I'm just thinking about it. There aren't many movies of that time where it's just that, where it's not supposed to be, you know, like most of the time it's just them walking home from school or something, but we're seeing them hanging out. We're seeing them have fun. We're seeing them get into fights. Yeah. And there are um, like, I think of movies like Diner, or American Graffiti mm-hmm. that are similar to this, um, A Bronx Tale, my favorite movie. I was thinking um, about uh, Dazed and Confused while watching this. Exactly, like just just kind of just the kind of nothingness of what they're talking about. They're just they're just with each other. They're just hanging out, and sometimes they get a little rowdy, and that's when the the parents come out and they tell them to hey, knock it off, you kids. Now that it's a little more justified in this one uh, when they were having a knife fight, you right. know, maybe a parent <laughs> should step in on that one. But yeah. th- like the the quiet moments, um, like you said, uh, the where you have a moment to breathe. There were there were there were a couple that really that really stood out to me that made that I think has the subtext that you're talking about. Where the first one is right before they're about to do that that chicken driving game, mm. and Buzz and Jimmy are just walking. And Buzz literally says, like, this is after the knife fight, after they've been stabbing each other. <laughs> he says, you know, I like you. And then <laughs> and then they get in their cars. Yeah. And then they're like, let's do this. And then they start driving. And then Buzz, his arm gets caught in the thing. And then um, he's dead. And there's um, Jimmy jumps out and he's 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 rolling and he's like, whoa, he's just kind of taking it in. I just did that. I jumped. I lost. But yeah. he's laughing. When everybody runs up to the edge, he's thinking, ha they're running up to see the cars that just exploded at the bottom. He's mm-hmm. laughing. He's actually laughing. He goes, hey, where's Buzz? And then some random guy goes, down there. And then he yeah. stopped laughing. And what th- that scene stood out to me because they this probably would have started a friendship. Like right. 
they 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 jumped out of the if they had both had jumped out of their cars they would like ha you're the loser anyway <laughs> that was pretty fun wasn't it and then that yeah. would have been it like because he was like James Dean who's supposed to be like this moody guy he's like hey wasn't that fun that was kind of neat huh and yeah. then he's you know of course it's all torn away a few moments later but like i think that's kind of the subtext of how they were literally enemies a few minutes ago and then this experience of that that could have that obviously is dangerous no matter what but mm -hmm. if it had turned out better they they most likely would have been friends and then i think it's that is mirrored later on Right. Um, when him and where uh, James Dean and Natalie Wood are having their alone time moment um, after they leave Plato to have his nap, yeah. they're they're talking about what what love means and how they're feeling. Oh, so this is what it's really like. And I think like that that is I think that's supposed to speak yes to teenagers, but I think it's mostly to the parents. Like it's it's not supposed to speak to them, but it's supposed to make them realize that teenagers are, are capable of having these thoughts. Mm -hmm. And they're capable of like, you know, they're not just existing. They're, they're going like their life has begun. They're no longer just hanging out They're They're, they're falling in love. They're making friends. Their, their futures are being laid out in front of them. And maybe we should slow down a minute and listen to them. Exactly. Yeah. They, they are confused. They are dealing with a lot, but that is not, that does not neglect the nuance that is in their minds. And that's something that it literally any teenager will attest to. I defy anyone to find a teenager that doesn't agree. Uh, oh, exactly. And, and like, it's not like teenagers can't be dumb and dramatic, but like, there's also so much, you know, truth in these moments. Yeah. And I was, I was actually going to mention, um, well, uh, what I thought you were going to say with the way the scene is mirrored is, and I only just put it together a moment ago, but that when James Dean gets out of the car and starts laughing, I only just realized it, it mirrors the ending of the movie when, and spoiler alert, we're talking about the whole movie, when Plato is shot and it's at the same place, it's at the planetarium and he just starts laughing like that's all he can do is just starts you know seeing like oh look at that look at the two different colored socks and stuff and mm -hmm. that is that is just kind of really this movie in a nutshell is the way that there is so much frustration and uh and angst for lack of a better or lack of a better word that sometimes the only resolution is one of uh, aggression, you know, like that's why the knife fight takes place earlier. That's why they uh, they engage in a drag race. That's why there's so much yelling and lashing out is because there's nowhere else for those emotions to go. They have to go somewhere. And this movie is a really, uh, really, really great example of this. And uh, yeah, just just uh, just just going back to what we were uh, talking about a second ago, the way, you know, those moments of peace, uh, I think that's something that a lot of the quote hangout movies, they don't a lot of them, at least that I've seen. Uh, they're not necessarily going for the same kind of dichotomy, like this is where the chaos is, but then uh, we can sort of retreat to <laughs> what Jeff Goldblum would call like a, a sweet, sweet sanctuary of the soul. Like there's not that sort of divide between the safe places and the unsafe places. And that's something that, uh, that I think was uh, really revolutionary about this movie and is part of the reason why 
a lot of others just aren't as good. I know we keep going back to this point, but it's it's worth repeating. It feels like in a lot of similar movies now, everywhere is unsafe. And that's just not realistic, at least in the way they're depicting it. So I think they could stand to take that lesson from this movie. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I th- I think there are a lot of lessons in this movie and um they it's it's a very it's a very thoughtful movie. It's very specific in its you know most of it takes place over that one night mm-hmm. and I think there's a lot that can just be taken in and appreciated about kind of the the intention here. Yeah. And uh and just you know Going back to it, there's just one last thing about this movie that I really love, and it's that, uh, again, the mirroring between the two scenes that take place at the planetarium, the observatory at Griffith Park, where the first one is very relaxed, very kind of uh, freeing a little bit of a respite from just all the stress in the world. And then the next time we go there is literally life and death, and it just shows how places change with our experiences with them. And so this is a very, very wise movie. And so I'm really glad that, uh, that we got to discuss it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I always love talking about my favorite movies and this is definitely one of them. It's like, mm-hmm. I've only seen it twice, but both times I, I get something different out of it. And it's very like it, it, it is very impactful every time. Yeah, I think I I don't think it would make like my top ten of the nineteen fifties, uh, but it's it's definitely way up there, and I think it's certainly one of the defining movies of that decade and that era. Yeah, it might be in my top ten of the fifties. Yeah, they're, like they're and that's also just ones. like I'm a, I'm a big fan of like like James Dean and Natalie Wood just as actors in general. Like mm-hmm. like Natalie Wood is one of my favorite actresses of all time. So like I just like seeing her in movies. So I'm sure that's also part of my my rating. Yeah. And, and it's just, you know, just such a damn shame that Natalie Wood, another Mm -hmm. actor who died way too early, like she still had, uh, she, she lived a few more decades, but even still it's kind of this accidental tragic poetry to this. And yeah, I just love the way that her character transitions from, uh, you know, being willing to join in the ridicule for James Dean. I mean, like she was a full on jerk in the beginning. (laughs) Exactly. Like, yeah. Like, They're and then like by the end, I'm like, which exactly. way the school is? <laughs> yeah. Like, she was uh, like fully just shut up, Natalie, in the beginning. Um, <laughs> like, she was just not. I was not rooting for her. But as as she progresses, as we see her relationship with her father, and we see how she reacts to um, Buzz dying, and we see how she reacts to um, Plato and Jimmy, and how their friendship has grown. And how she, like we 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 almost see in real time her her character fall in love with Jimmy, and it's it's very like she's just very captivating in this movie. I think everyone's very captivating in this movie, uh, and and that's part of what makes it so great. And so definitely one of the great movies about. Uh, about being young and about growing older so i think that's Mm -hmm. fair to say uh anthony i was i was i wanted to ask um did you have any uh final thoughts that you wanted to give about rebel without a cause any other observations or maybe similar movies or anything like that um i mean i was thinking about similar movies i already mentioned a couple of american american graffiti diner Mm -hmm. a bronx tale um a recent movie i would say is brooklyn with Mm. saoirse ronan Ooh, Um, that's a good one yeah, I think that's a. They have a similar in terms of the the relationship between the two 
characters. I think it's they have a similar uh, pacing and um, just, you know, just because it's fun. Uh, fun fact, Fry from Futurama based right. on James Dean look in this movie. Like, yeah. that's always one of my favorite facts. Uh, Since I've seen Futurama a million times, I was thinking about Fry through most of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, just I, I love the movie. It's it's very poetic. It's very affecting. And I like it's 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 heavy, but it's also just kind of it's just enjoyable. Yeah, I think it's one that definitely deserves to be sought out rather than just sort of acknowledged as iconic, which it is, but also like actually watch the thing. I think that's Mm -hmm. definitely something I would recommend doing. Exactly. Watch the thing. That's the best way to go about it. (laughs) Also watch the thing by John Carpenter, which is a very good movie, but exactly that's completely beside the point. Uh, (laughs) I, I just thought of it. I just want to give a recommendation real quick. It's actually a, a movie that came out this year in the midst of the pandemic via streaming and stuff. One of my favorite movies of the year, also a high school movie. It's called to the stars, uh, starring Kara Hayward from moonrise kingdom. And, um, it's a very, very different uh, movie tonally, but I think it's getting at a lot of the same things about that empathy, and it is just remarkably stylish. I love the look of this movie, and it's one of the few high school movies that I really, really loved. Like, not even just liked, I love this thing. So I believe that's on Hulu now, so uh, check that out if you can. I yeah, I, I, haven't even, I think I've heard of it, but I haven't seen it anywhere. Yeah, I'll definitely check that one out. I really dig it. Uh, and yeah, and I think with that, I believe that we can uh, do our our whole sh- uh, sign-off shtick. So, uh, Anthony, why don't you let the listeners know where can they find you online? Where can they keep an eye out for uh, what you're up to? Well, uh, you know, uh, I'm on Letterboxd. Uh, I got uh, that. That's where I log and review movies. And then I also I'll just, you know, because I'm here. I'll, I'll, I'm directing a short film uh, that it's called Briar County and it's you can we have an Instagram you can just search Briar County uh, and that's going to be on uh, we're going to put that in the film festival circuit in the next few months uh, so mm. maybe uh, maybe by the next time I'm on this show it'll be finished and I can tell you <laughs> where to find it but as of right now we're still shooting it but um, it'll probably end up being on YouTube Vimeo and anywhere else we can put it so uh, yeah that's awesome punch that up and what was uh, j- just just to clarify for anyone wondering, what was the uh, the spelling on that? B Y. Wait, hold on. Now, now I forgot how to spell. <laughs> it's gone through like fifteen title changes. We're still in oh, early really? production. Yeah, B R Y A R County. Gotcha. Awesome. Yeah, definitely keep an eye on that. I know a lot of the other crew members, and I know that they'll uh, turn out something real, real nice. Uh, I'm also on Letterboxd, just by name, Sam Nolan. Same deal. Log everything I watch. I'm also on Twitter, at NolanSam. Uh, that's where I tweet things, which is what Twitter is for. So that's the deal with that. You don't say. <laughs> I do say, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and yeah, I host this show every week. I also host game over man and a nice place to visit on the cinemaholics patreon for as low as two dollars a month uh you can come hang out with us talk about the alien and predator movies and the twilight zone with adonis gonzalez and i and uh yeah i think to quote this slugline from our old podcast that's all we got i'm sam i'm anthony and we'll catch you on the next extra milestone